Well, good morning. It's, um, you know, the normal Doc Scott here with my 90-day devotional called No More Cycles, which the written ones, I just want to remind people that the written version is on my blog, DocScottTalks.com. That's a lot of T's in there. And they're different than this because this is live. <laughs> and whatever comes out of my mouth comes out of my mouth. So, um... I was pondering again this morning, you know, I'm always pondering, right, um, on essentially the, um, how lawlessness, because I, I talked a little bit about lawlessness the other day, and how really in defining things in our culture right now, it's not really about politics or parties, it's really about lawlessness and righteousness, and Jesus is establishing righteousness in the earth, and um, lawlessness, <laughs> hey, from Thailand, awesome. Lawlessness is um, essentially no law applies to me, right? And so it does everything that you see narcissistic personality disorder do. Um, essentially, it, it blame shifts, it blames everybody, it... Um, you know, I always joke and say, if you want to know what lawless or evil people are doing, you know, um, just listen to what they're accusing you of. And that's usually what they're doing. And so this lawlessness comes out of this orphaned place, this orphaned spirit. And, um, and out of that place, you know, there's, there's like, it's always shame. And so I was, you know, here's the thing about shame. It's a little bit something I've been twirling on too. It's a lens, and shame is a lens that you look through and you see your world through. It's almost like because it's pervasive, it actually shifts the way you see. I mean, almost literally, what you see, how you interpret every response, and where you go with it, because shame's not an emotion. It is a pervasive feeling and just um, this kind of deep thing of I'm defective, there's got to be something wrong with me, I'm not enough, um, I'm not lovable, nobody wants me, you know, people don't know how to do the right thing, you know, shame really kind of keeps us locked into our victim, <laughs> and it really does, because the victim says what? Everything in life happens to me, right? It all, life is always happening to me, and I don't have any control over my destiny, that's a victim. But shame keeps us locked in that place of victimization. And it tells us that we, you know, whether literal or not, is that we are orphans, right? And so I know I go back to these guys, but the one, you know, when you look at that man, I was reading something this morning about the man at the pool, Bethesda. Really, his response was an orphaned one when he said, I don't have anybody to put me into the pool, right? But here's the part that I thought is pretty awesome about that. Jesus saw through his orphan spirit and he still told him to get up and walk. What was he doing? He was being a father in the moment to a man, like in a moment just like that. I would venture to say that that man at the pool was probably fatherless. I'm, I'm just guessing. Because there is a, there's a huge correlation between lawlessness and fatherlessness and zero conscience. If you want to know the stats on that, just look at the numbers of people incarcerated and their background. 
usually it involves that because fathers play a significant role. And so we've kind of, we've seen this kind of, you know, as a country, we orphaned ourselves a while ago and we kind of dissed everything the founders founded us on, right? So we, we orphaned ourselves. But if you look at, um, fathers play an instrumental role. If you look at the beginning of life, who's the predominant figure at that point? Mom, right? Because, and it's not saying that both parents aren't significant all the way through the journey, but at different points in our development, we identify in places or need something more from one parent or another. And so the orphan, um, sorry, not orphan, but in the beginning stages, the way that a child gets a sense of being, the way that they actually find themselves and who they are, their identity comes from mom. You know, in that whole bonding process, the, you know, the nursing, the feeding, and all of that connection, a baby doesn't know itself apart from its mother. So literally, it finds itself mirrored in its mother's eyes. And that mirroring experience is what gives that kid a sense of being, that they're actually alive or connected, you know, that they're, that they're living, okay? But when you get into our teen years, this is a place where fathers have a very unique role in being able to call forth their sons and their daughters to become something separate from mom. And I don't mean that like, we're not, you know, mom's done now. What I mean by that is we're talking about developmental stages. We're talking about identity. Okay, so a present father um, in those situations is able to, through his initiation, his ability to love and to demonstrate love in tangible ways, to be a voice of conscience, to be a voice of affirmation. When those things are present in the equation, it's what helps daughters and sons to separate themselves from um, the, their identity that's been wrought in mom and actually calls them out into a place of their own. It's part of what calls them forth into their own identity, right? And that conscience piece is something that that role of a father, and we like to underestimate this in our culture, you know, we've got everything that says, you know, now we can't even be masculine without offending everybody. And, um, but essentially, it's that penetration, that initiation, that, you know, that a son or a daughter knows that they're actually seen by father. And that voice in their life is what enables them to kind of emerge and into their own person and, and it furthers their own development. When you don't have that piece, what you have is a orphan um, and there's all kinds of not being present. Some fathers aren't present because they just weren't home. Others walked out the door and you know, others were hard, you know, working or emotionally absent, etc. But you will see in our culture, in a fatherless culture, what do you see? You see the breakdown of everything that has to do with our sexuality, for one. You know, if you want to talk about where some of that comes from, that's where it comes from. And, and so you see the breakup then on top of that of the nuclear family. The more you fragment us as a culture, the further, the deeper we go into shame the more, because those essential pieces, like a family unit, 
And I, I'm not dissing modern families either. I'm thankful that we have, that there are children that actually have people around them as opposed to being completely orphaned. But as you take away that and you break that down and you remove fathers from the figure, from the picture, um, what do you think that that does? The more fragmented we come, become, the more we are shamed. And that, that shame that is in the soil of our heart, you know, it's the leaven in the bread. It kind of goes through every part of us and it colors our perception. And, you know, I, I gave an example yesterday of how, you know, I was having an incredible day. And Jesus doing stuff all over the place. And then I get one email from a college that I was really looking at, um, you know, as an assistant professor at a Christian university, which is what I'm looking at and looking for. And the email itself wasn't necessarily negative. It just simply said that we're far in our process right now and we're moving through it. But here's the thing with it, shame does. Shame is not an, an emotion that's in isolation. Shame is, is a pervasive feeling that pulls from emotions and from memory and from other things. It's usually connected to, on, on the front end, to wounding that comes from a, a, a parental or authority figure. That's where it starts. So go through life. And so all of a sudden, because we're complex, we're not, I mean, I'm simple in a lot of ways, but there are places where emotionally we're complex in the sense that that one experience now has all this emotion back here. It has all the shame that I've experienced in other contexts and literally it pulls it into now. And then suddenly <clears throat> I'm, you know, I'm spiraling all the way down. That's what it does and the way that we come up and out of that is we have to learn how to figure out what needs to come out of our mouth um you know bill johnson talks about when he talks about negative kind of introspective stuff that doesn't go anywhere you know the accusations come in you know, you walk away from a conversation with a friend and you start evaluating everything you said, like, oh, I bet they thought this about that. That's your shame talking, right? I bet they saw this on me or I bet they, you know, whatever. That's all shame. What he really says is he talks about how I, I have to take every thought captive. I have to kick it out of my head. And, and, and we do. There, um, because the reality is this. Jesus has never left us. When my biological father walked out at five, Jesus was standing there holding my hand. And he was letting me know even then, even though I didn't see him then, that he had this and that he was my father and we've got this. It's only because of Jesus apprehending me at that juncture that I didn't become lawless. Does that make sense? In other words, Jesus apprehended me down the road, right? But when Jesus apprehends us and we encounter him in various places and we encounter what happens when he heals something in our heart, he begins to, you begin to see the thread of everywhere that he's been, um, with me all along. And so, in fact, the healing of memories is essentially that.
It's people finding out that Jesus was there. That's really all of the crux of what we would call the healing of memories is about. It's finding Jesus in the picture because he never left it. But unless we can access that, that love, that father heart of God somewhere along the way, we're, we don't, we won't get it. We have to get it. And, and, you know, that's why the, the, the place that we um, have as mothers and fathers and the faith is, is significant because essentially we're part of fathering a generation that didn't get fathered. And so that's really kind of what we do, no matter whether we acknowledge that or not. I don't care if you're a 25-year-old father or a, you know, 50-year-old father, we're still doing that very same thing. And so... When we look at, like I said, what comes out of my mouth, I have to have this stance that I, I don't have room in my headspace for accusation because otherwise I will perpetually be a victim and I will see everything as being part of my victimization. One of the things that Bill Johnson said, he said, you know, this is how you know you're not a victim. A victim says, why are you doing this to me, God? Like, why, why, why? And I spent many years as the victim. My wife and I's life went down the toilet in a handbasket. We lost everything at one juncture. Everything, everything that could blow up, blew up. I call it the perfect storm orchestrated by the enemy. What was his goal in doing that? And what happens in those places? When the stuff hits the fan, we find out what's on the inside of the cup. And Jesus said, it's not what you eat that defiles you. It's what's inside your heart. And we become more present to our heart when we're in the cauldron. That's why we get messy. If you want to see what people are made of, just watch them in the middle of the fire. You know, a lot of, in our religious Christianity, we want to keep everything nice and neat, Right. Because we think we have to be a witness. Okay, that's religion. People are not looking at me to do it all right. What they are looking at me to do is to see something in me that finds Jesus in every place. That finds Jesus, whether I fall, whether I get into sin, whether I spiral out in depression, whatever I do, when they see hope, I remember somebody in church a few years back saying, I do a lot of the communion stuff at church. And, I, and a lot of times, honestly, for years, I mean, just being transparent here, I was contending from a place of disappointment. And so when I literally got up, the things that I declared out of my mouth were what I needed to hear. And it was essentially as if my... I was declaring something as being true that my heart hadn't fully apprehended yet. But I knew that in declaring it and declaring it and declaring it, my heart would apprehend it. But I always felt like I was contending from a place of disappointment and people found a lot of hope. This person said to me, I love it when you get up there because I, all I ever hear is hope. And I'm thinking, really? Do you know where I'm living? <laughs> like, <laughs> if, I'm glad you're hearing hope because when I got up there, the first thing is I felt hopeless. But it says something to the testament of what comes out of our mouth. And so I don't have, I have to not have room for headspace. 
um, for a negative accusation, for my shame to talk to me and tell me that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good enough. I'm not this, I'm not that. I have to be radical in my take and addressing it, taking every thought captive. Trust me, when we do that, our heart is going to apprehend it. It's really, it really is going to get it. You know, Jesus, our Philip said to Jesus and John, he said, just show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Philip was crying out for that revelation of a father. You know, he wanted to know father's love. And basically, Jesus said, I'm him. So if you look at the way that I interact with you, if you look at what I'm doing, you will see the Father in everything I do. Why do we think that that song, you're a good, good father, went all around the world? Because one, there's anointing on it for sure, right? But it was anointed because it was going out to an orphan generation that needed to know that God was good. That's one of the things that Bill Johnson said. He said, here's the deal. What's wrong with Christendom today is that we don't believe God's good. And if you want to know what the fiery trials and all the stuff that have hit the fan and all the places that we fail and all of that, we struggle with our sin, whatever, all of that, the enemy's goal is this. I'm going to get you to doubt that God's good. I'm going to, I'm going to, I, he wants me to stay a victim. He wants me to believe that God is doing this to me. Right, right? And so, and my shame agrees with it, right? My shame says I'm defective and wrong, so God must be. How many years? I actually had somebody say this to us. They asked, they said, I wonder if there's a curse over your family. Because so many bad things happened. We got leveled. We got completely leveled. Lost everything financially. I, I mean, everything blew up. Maybe there's a curse. That's the kind of thinking, you know, when you even say that out of your mouth, you're actually pronouncing that over someone. No, I wasn't cursed. My family wasn't cursed. I'm not saying there's no generational stuff to deal with. Holy Spirit can reveal that. What I'm saying is you were calling a curse what was actually shame for me. I wasn't cursed. I just needed to know who my father was, and I needed to know that he was for me. And what happened during that season in my life, um, in my wife's life, that um, we just spiraled, is I just built walls. I built walls, you know, one layer of disappointment after another. I became the man at the pool of Bethesda, who had been that way for 38 years, and his orphaned response was, well, it's not my fault. I don't have anybody to throw me in the pool when the angel comes, right? Jesus steps into that picture and he rescues us out by demonstrating his love as a father. I can, yes, my, I can trust God no matter what because he's good. And so I'll tell you if you've got that one or if you're living in shame. And when I say that, I do this on a daily basis. Bill Johnson said, when you're not a victim slash orphan, when something comes your way, because here's the thing, 
When I first became a Christian, I got disillusioned like all of us because we had this cosmic view of God as Santa and that he was magical and that once he was in the boat, everything was great. Well, once he was in the boat, everything blew up. Why? <laughs> because he was gotten to my heart. <laughs> he was to show me what was there. In other words, apart from Jesus, I couldn't even get healed. I couldn't even figure out what was wrong with me. I mean, honestly, I could, there wasn't enough self-help. I needed Jesus to come in and actually reveal my own heart, right? He said, but here's what Bill said. When something happens that's bad, right? Because Jesus never said that we were rescued from that. And I have to say this. There, I sound stupid. Not stupid. I didn't say that out of shame. I was being funny. At one point in my Christian life early on, I had a revelation. The revelation was life is hard. And that Jesus wasn't Santa Claus. He didn't come to take me out of the trouble. He didn't come to rescue me from stuff happening or stuff hitting the fan. He came to stand with me as one in it, as the resurrected and crucified one inside of me so that I could actually walk through it, not alone. And what Bill said was, if the question that we're asking if we're not a victim is, hmm, so Lord, what are you doing here? How do you want me to respond? That question alone is not the question of a victim. It's a question of trust. So when something hits the fan, I'm not saying, why are you doing this to me? I'm saying, huh, this is an opportunity for faith. This is an opportunity for a miracle. This is an opportunity. What are you doing, right? This is an opportunity for something to happen. And that is what happens in our heart when we're not a victim, when we're not living and speaking and out of our shame. Shame is the lens that colors everything we see in life. And that's why we, people, we see people stay victims because their shame tells them that they deserve what they're getting. And believe me, hang around a little bit and you'll have people in the church tell you the same thing. Because church people don't like mess. So when your life blows up and goes to hell in a handbasket, um, good morning, Regina, they, they're looking at you. Why? Like there's something wrong with you. Well, brother, you just need to pray harder. Brother, you just need to read your Bible more. You just, you know what? Don't give me trivialities. Don't, don't, like, don't do religion with me because I don't do it at all. And that is the religious response. The pharisaical response to your life blowing up is what's wrong with you. So even in the church, we heap shame on people. We just keep heaping it on them because we make them feel like there's something wrong with them because they have something going on or their life is messy. And yet we say we want all these people to come into the church. What are we going to do with them? What are we going to do with them? Are we just going to shame them and tell them that I'm sorry that you've been so sexually addicted for so long that that's just something defective with you? Or we say we want the prostitute, we want the drug addict and people to come into church, but what are we going to give them? We have to give them the heart of the Father. We have to give them, we have to recognize that there are orphans 
out there, orphans in their spirit, and the things that have happened to them have caused them to look at life through the lens of shame and victimization. How do I help that person? I demonstrate love. I demonstrate love, and I demonstrate love, and I'm not judging. I'm always embracing. I'm always embracing. Shame tells me to put my head down. The Father, the Spirit of the Father, you know, the fatherhood of God, that, that penetration of his love makes my head come up. The enemy wants us to always feel separated from God and in our shame so that we can live in that place where we're, we're not even remotely effective at anything because he's already got us. If he can keep me bound and tethered to shame and tethered to the mistakes of the past and tethered to the, all the places of failure, then he's got me. And I'll never know who I really am and I'll really be ineffective and I won't demonstrate and release the kingdom where I go because I'm tethered to shame. So two things. The way out is one, we have to release the Father heart of God. We have to be, we have to be love. And we have to be loved, not with just other people, but with ourselves. We have to have a kinder view of what has happened in our own life. We have to have a kinder view. Because look, Jesus, it's, it is the kindness of God that leads us to a place of repentance and changing our mind. It's changing the way we see. Perspective is everything. It's absolutely everything because we live out of our perspective. If my perspective, my lens is clouded with shame, that's all I see. I see a rejection there. I see a rejection there. I see a rejection there. I do all this like painful introspection over evaluating of everything under the sun and come away feeling like a heap of crap which isn't good. The other part of that, that I just want to kind of help us get today is my dialogue and my vocabulary has to change. I have to look at and listen to what's coming out of my mouth because oftentimes I'm cursing myself and I need to say the truth and rehearse the truth and declare the truth. Look, the word is active and living and sharper than a two-edged sword. But if the only talk that goes on in my brain and the only thing that I have headspace for is the accusation of the enemy and doubt and my shame dialogue going around in my head, I will never come into a place of freedom and I will never feel fully adopted by the spirit of adoption that when the father pours out his adoption and his spirit of adoption into our hearts, that's the part that like reconciles things in us. It's the part that actually lets us know that we're loved and that he, it's his love that changes us. If I have a dark view of my history and I'm not capable of blessing my story, even the places that are broken, then I will not come into that place and come up and out of shame. So my head dialogue, I have to take every thought captive. I have to be vigilant with what goes on in my head. 
And so if that means that I need to avail myself to worship, if I need to read, if I need to do whatever, if I need to just say to the thought that's in my head, get out, right? Because the voice of accusation is never Jesus. It's always, it's always the enemy. The enemy agrees with your shame and he wants to perpetuate it because he knows that it keeps you separated from God. Separation is the biggest illusion that was ever propagated in Christendom. And that's why we stay stuck in addiction, stuck in this, stuck in cycles that go around and around every time, right? Because the enemy is helping fuel what I already believe about myself. So Lord, I just ask that um, you would change our dialogue. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just do something with the things that come out of our mouth. And Holy Spirit, would you enable us to like constantly be, um, you know, perusing our headspace and what's in it so that what comes out of my mouth, would you, would you pour out kindness and love and tender mercies that draw me into you and draw me in to hearing what I'm actually saying. And would you give me your healing word, Lord, one word from you, where you tell me who I am, can obliterate shame. So I'm asking, Father, that you to release your healing word to us, that we would begin to hear what you have to say, and you would put your stamp of approval on us, so much so that we would never be able to break our gaze with you again. That we would always be able to see you face to face, look into your eyes, pupil to pupil, and know that we belong. No matter what we did five minutes ago, we always belong. And that's the truth. Bless you guys. This has been fun. See you tomorrow at 7.